Well, hello again. Good morning. If you have your Bibles, please grab them and please turn with me to Jonah chapter 2. Jonah chapter 2. Hello, everybody who is watching online. We're in week two of our study in the book of Jonah. It's called A Big Fish and a Second Chance. As you're turning to Jonah, um, a couple of the big books that are before Jonah, um, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, if you are turning and hit those, keep turning. Um, If you make it to Matthew, you've gone too far, and so it's somewhere in between there. Uh, But today, we're really going to be talking about one subject. We're going to be talking about failure. Now, I wonder what comes to your mind when you think about the word failure. Maybe you think about an image or a video clip playing in your mind of one of your failures. I want to start by telling you about one of my failures. One of the things that I pride myself in is I think that I'm really good at finding cheap tickets online. Okay, so some guys, they hunt for gators. Some guys hunt for deal or for, for deer or for ducks. I hunt for good deals on sports games, okay? And uh, I was in North Carolina a couple of years ago for Thanksgiving, and some of my family wanted to go to a Charlotte Hornets game, and I was like, guys, you're in luck. I'm your guy. I will find a great deal for us. And so basically, I wasted all of my Thanksgiving on my phone, on Craigslist, on SeatGeek, on StubHub. I was going to find the best deal for my family to go to a Charlotte Hornets game. Now, one of the things, if you're looking on one of these websites, is you got to make sure that you avoid scammers. Because there are people that, believe it or not, this is crazy, they will try to take your money, and they don't even have any tickets to give you. And so... I am typically pretty good. I know what to look for. I see the posts that seem a little fishy and shady, and I see the ones that I think that's legit. And so I saw one, and I made a mistake because I convinced myself too quickly that it was legit. And once you've kind of convinced yourself, you've passed that barrier, you're kind of in, and I made that mistake. I just allowed my skepticism to drop. And so I was communicating with this individual, and he asked me to send him half of the money before he sent me the tickets. And I don't know why, guys, I did it. I'm going to be honest with you. I I had already convinced myself it was real, and so I sent him the money, and immediately our text conversation went completely silent. He stopped texting me back. He lost my number. I don't know what happened. And so I immediately started texting him way faster. You guys know that panic moment when you're like, oh, I just got played here. And so I was texting him, I was texting him, I was texting him. And eventually, after three hours, the realization hit me um, that I had Venmoed him money that I would never get back and that I had really spent $50 on a good sermon illustration. (laughs) And so it's a failure. And here's what I know about failures. I know that all of us will fail in this room. Failure is inevitable. But here's what also I know, that transformation is optional. See, failure is guaranteed, but whether we will learn and whether we will grow is up to us, and really, it's up to how we respond to that failure. Do we walk God's prescribed path for failure? Now, when it comes to our sin, when it comes to our failure, I have discovered that people kind of gravitate to one of two extremes. For some of us, We hide from our sin or failure, or we just downplay it. Um, My son Isaiah, he is three years old, and he has gotten into the bad habit of shoving his brother Malachi. Now, when he does this, he has some lines that he's learned that he knows we want to hear. So he will shove his brother, and then he'll be like, I'm sorry, I won't do it again, I promise. Which I don't believe at all. I didn't even believe it the first time. Or he'll immediately say, it was an accident. And it's like, you're literally laying on your brother, shoving his face into the mattress at that time telling me it's an accident. I don't believe it. So we could do that too in our relationship with God. We can downplay or we can hide from our sin. But, you know, there's another extreme that can happen where you and me, where we actually allow our failure to crush us or even allow our failure to disqualify us. And maybe there are people in here that when you heard the word failure, you thought about something that you did, and ever since then, you've been sitting on the sideline. 
you haven't engaged in life, you haven't engaged in church, you haven't engaged with God, because you feel like something that happened to you in the past disqualifies you from being used by God in the future. And we can allow our failure to hold us back, but let me tell you that there is actually a path that God has prescribed that is neither of those things. And it's a word called repentance. Now, the word repentance is often a dirty word in church, and oftentimes we can want to avoid repentance. But here's what I believe, and this is the big idea that we're going to be talking about all day today. It's on the screen. That repentance is a faucet that allows God to pour his grace and mercy into our lives. I want you to think about that for a second. Repentance is a faucet that allows God to pour his grace and mercy into our lives. You see, sometimes when people think about God, they think God is like the policeman in the sky that's just waiting for them to mess up so he can strike them down. But here's, here's what I know about God. God loves us. God has an incredible plan for us. And God wants to pour grace and mercy into our lives. But he opposes the proud and he gives grace to the humble. In other words, God is not going to force you to do anything. And so when we humble ourselves, when we repent, when we turn to God, God opens, that opens up our lives and God loves to pour his grace and his mercy in. You see, I love this verse from Psalm chapter 103. It's on the screen and it says this, God, he knows our frame and he remembers that we are dust. You see, God is not shocked when we fail God is not shocked by our weakness. God understands our weakness. And he wants to help us. And and repentance is the path for for us to open up our lives to God's help. And so with that being said, we're going to study the story of Jonah and discover today repentance. The title today is Rethinking Repentance. Now, hopefully you're in Jonah too. Let me give you a quick recap. Jonah was a prophet of God. And God gave him a specific task. God sent him to the city of, anybody know? Good job. God sent him to the city of Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a horrible place, the capital of the Assyrian Empire, uh, one of the most barbaric, violent civilizations in human history. They loved to attack and destroy and just honestly uh, wreak havoc all over the known world. And Jonah, when he was sent to preach to Nineveh, Jonah said, I don't want to do that. That's not for me, God. And so instead of going to Nineveh, he went the complete opposite direction. He hopped on a boat and he started sailing towards a town called Tarshish. Now, when he is sailing, a huge storm hits and Jonah immediately recognizes the reason this storm is here is because of me. I have have failed. I've made a mistake. And this is God's consequence. And so he goes to the sailors and he says, throw me overboard. And if you throw me overboard, this storm will stop. The sailors do it. They throw him overboard and immediately there is calm. Now this is what we're going to pick up. And and I want you to look even at verse 17 of Jonah chapter 1 for a second. That's where we're going to start. Jonah chapter 1 verse 17 and it says this. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Now, right away, we're seeing the grace and mercy of God. Because here's what God could have said. God could have been like, listen, Jonah, I got plenty of prophets out there. I got Haggai and I got Habakkuk and I got Zephaniah. I'll send one of them. You can stay in the Mediterranean Sea and you can drown for your disobedience. But see, God, he cared about Nineveh. And he cared about the hearts of the people of Nineveh. But he also cared about Jonah's heart. And so God prepares this fish to be a transportation vehicle of his grace and mercy and to give Jonah time to turn his heart and to repent of his failure. And here's what we see in verse 1 of Jonah chapter 2. It says, from the inside of the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. Now, I love that verse. You know, maybe some of us in here we are in our own version of the belly of a fish. We're experiencing uh, consequences for our actions or we're feeling far from God. 
Can I tell you that one of the best things that we can do is we could do what Jonah did. Jonah prayed. And I think so often when we experience failure, we look to blame, we look to pout, we look to, to downplay. But the best thing we can do when we fail is we can pray. And Jonah prayed. And in verse 2, it says this. He said, in my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. From the deep, in the realm of the dead, I called for help and you listened to my cry. Once again, we see the grace and mercy of God that God listens when Jonah prays. And do you know that when you cry out to God, wherever you are at, God will listen to you. I love this quote from R.T. Kendall. He says this, The belly of the fish is not a happy place to live, but it is a good place to learn. And for some of us, maybe we are experiencing some form of, of failure right now. And it's not the best place to live, but it's a good place to learn. Now, I want to take a step back here, and I want to ask a question about this story. You know, Jonah is one of the most famous children's Bible stories. I have read it to Isaiah and Malachi. They love it. Maybe you went to Sunday school or you grew up hearing about it in kids' church. But Jonah is one of those stories that as an adult, we start to maybe apply some critical thinking skills and we start to feel like this is a little suspicious. And in fact, even for uh, critics of the Bible, Jonah is one of the stories that they attack the most. They say things like, man, this is clearly a parable. It's clearly a fable. There's no way a, a rational adult could believe that a, a whale swallowed a person or a fish. We don't really know if it was a whale, a great fish. Like, how could you believe that? This is just a made-up story, some nice lessons you can learn from it, but, but it can't possibly be real. Now, I would like to uh, propose three evidences that Jonah is, in fact, a real story. The, the first evidence is that Jesus believed it was a real story. And to me, if Jesus thinks it's real, uh, that, that's a really, really good reason for me to believe it's real. Amen? <clears throat> and, and Jesus, in Matthew chapter 12, he says this, that uh, just like Jonah spent three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man, Jesus, will spend three days and three nights. He compares it to his death, burial, and resurrection to Jonah. So Jesus believed it's real. Uh, the, the second great evidence for this story is that this story does include many actual historical facts. Uh, archaeologically speaking, Nineveh and Assyria, they are real places. Uh, even during that time, they would have been enemies of the people of God. And so there's lots of great uh, historical evidence that there is real facts in this story. And actually, this is really interesting. In June of 2021... A man who was a fisherman off the coast of Massachusetts named Michael Packard, he was swallowed by a humpback whale, and he stayed in the humpback whale for 40 seconds. So not three days and three nights, but he did stay in there, and then the whale, how shall I say it, regurgitated him, and he had uh, no real long-term injuries from it. You can look up the story. It is an actual real story. But here's really the third evidence and what I believe is the most compelling evidence that Jonah is real. And it's what I like to call the Genesis 1-1 test. You see, in Genesis 1-1, it says this, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what I believe is, if you can believe Genesis 1-1, you can believe the rest of the Bible. But because it's always funny to me that people doubt these, these verses in the middle of the Bible. It's like the Bible starts with God speaking creation into existence. And if God can speak creation into existence, if God can form human beings with all of the intricacies and complexities, if God can sustain life, which we believe that he does, it's not crazy to think that he can keep a man inside the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. And I always believe, man, if I can believe Genesis 1-1, I can believe the rest of the story. Now, Let's keep reading because we want to discover what it is that we, God wants to teach us through this story. Look at verse 3. It says this. Jonah writing, he's writing this poem talking about his experience. And he says in verse 3 of Jonah 2, You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas. 
and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight, yet I will look again toward your holy temple. Verse 5, the engulfing waters threatened me, the deep surrounded me, and seaweed was wrapped around my head. So Jonah here, he's giving us a very vivid picture of his experience in the water and in the belly of the fish. We can almost see it and taste it, the slime and the goo and the seaweed and the darkness. He's describing being in the heart of the sea, the seaweed being wrapped around his head, the water rushing over him. But he makes a really interesting point that I want us to highlight. Jonah attributes uh, all of these actions to God. Notice in verse 3, he says, you hurled me into the depths of the sea. In verse 4, he said, I have been banished from your sight. You see, Jonah is recognizing here that the reason that he is in this situation is because of God, and it's because of God's discipline. Now remember, we're talking here about repentance, and the first thing that I want us to learn about repentance, if you're taking notes, you can jot this down, that discipline is inevitable. Discipline is inevitable. You see, uh, we don't like talking about discipline too much, but, but I want us to know something, that God has a plan for your life. God's primary plan is that we would grow to become more like Jesus. And one of the ways that he does this is through discipline. Now, now I know people that we don't like to hear sermons on discipline. I, I got a question for you. Uh, raise your hand. Who likes to hear sermons about God's blessing? You guys like hearing teaching on God's blessing? I do. Who likes to hear teaching about the love of God? You guys love the love of God? Well, I got a verse for you. Look out on the screen with me. Proverbs 3. It's about the love of God. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline and do not resent his rebuke because the Lord disciplines those he, what? He loves. As a father, the son, he delights in. See, we're rethinking this and we're recognizing that God's discipline, it's not because God is angry at us. It's not because God hates us. It's actually because he loves us. You, You know, just the same way, My son Isaiah, when he's shoving Malachi, it would be unloving for me to let him get away with it. And in fact, when Katie and I, when we discipline him, when we send him to simmer time, it's because we love him. It's because we want him to grow and we want him to change. And in the same way, God disciplines us because he loves us. Now, here's the question. What what, what does it mean for God to discipline us? Well, I want to take a moment And I want to tell you two things that it doesn't mean. First off, just because we are suffering doesn't mean that God is disciplining us. Every form of suffering isn't God's discipline. Because ultimately, we live in a broken and fallen world. Every human being has free will. And so they can sin against us and they can hurt us. So I don't want you to hear me say that just because you're hurting means that God is disciplining you. But I do want you to know this. Romans 8.28 says that God works all things together for the good. And so you can be guaranteed, if you are hurting, that God is working in your life. Now, I also believe that when it comes to discipline, God is not trying to trick us. So let's say you wake up, you, you get out of bed, you turn on your car to go to work, the car doesn't start, you're late for work, your day is spiraling out of control. I don't think that's because you lied to your mom in ninth grade. I don't think God's like, ha ha, gotcha. So, so what is the discipline of God? Well, I wrote down a few things that are evidences or that, that are practical ways we can know God is disciplining us. They're on the screen. The, the first thing that God's discipline looks like is instruction from his word. Do you know right now, as we're learning the Bible together, we're receiving instruction. We're receiving discipline from God. The second form of discipline is prompting from his spirit before and after we sin. I know that all of us, we've been in a place where we're about to do something that we shouldn't do or we act in a way we know we shouldn't act and immediately we hear the Holy Spirit's voice speaking to us. That is an example of his discipline. Number three, a lack of peace and joy after sin, that we're not able to uh, have the joy that we once had because we messed up. 
Number four is natural consequences. You know, oftentimes, the, the discipline of the Lord looks like us just uh, experiencing the natural consequences in uh, the human realm of our rebellion. Man, if you're uh, sitting on the side of the road and you got blue lights behind you because you rolled through a stop sign, um, that's a natural consequence. Uh, number five is broken relationships with others. So often our rebellion, our discipline leads to broken relationships. And then number six is this, and this is a heavy one, strongholds in our life because of disobedience. You see, when we rebel against God, we're telling God, I don't want you in this area of my life. And so God is going to respect that. He's going to remove his protection from our lives. And we're opening ourselves up to attacks from the enemy based on our disobedience. Now, I want you to notice something about this list. If you guys could put that up one more time. that There are some forms of discipline on this list that I would much prefer, prefer than to others. Do you guys agree with that? And what I want you to hear is that discipline is inevitable. We are going to have to experience discipline as a Christian. But we can choose to experience more or less desirable forms of discipline. And in fact, I would put it like this. It's up on the screen. That, that discipline is inevitable, but my level of humility affects my level of discipline. You see, the more teachable I am, the more open to correction I am, the more I'm going to be able to receive uh, the, the sweet, gentle correction of God instead of the harsh reality of natural consequences. Here's what I would say. That jogging is a form of, of, of physical discipline. And receiving a phone call from your doctor that you have high blood pressure due to poor lifestyle choices, that is also a form of discipline. They're both disciplines. I would say that one is more desirable than the other, and I believe it could be the same thing in the spiritual realm as well. Man, I want us to be people of humility, being open to the correction of the Lord. And so let's keep reading. Look with me at verse 6. We're about to see Jonah begin to turn his heart towards God, and he says this, To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought up my life from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to your holy temple. He says those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love to them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. Now, a quick observation here. If you study through this passage, what you'll discover is that Jonah, throughout his poem that he is writing, he is quoting from a number of different psalms and other areas of scripture. And here's the application point for us. We're going to deal with hard times. There will be moments in our lives where we are in the belly of the whale. But Jonah, even though he was rebelling against God, he had hidden the word of God in his heart. And when he was dealing with a hard time, what he had hidden in his heart was coming forth. And so for you and for me, when we're in the good times, if we're filling our lives with scripture if we're meditating on scripture, memorizing scripture, thinking about scripture, that's what's going to come forth in our lives. And it's going to be a foundation for our lives when the hard times come. And so that's why we love the word of God and studying the word of God. But what we see here is that Jonah is beginning the process of repentance. He's crying out to God and he's beginning to see that God is moving. Even though Jonah is still in the belly of the well, I believe he's receiving a realization that God's going to move in his life. Verse 6, you brought my life up from the pit. Verse 7, my prayer rose to you. Verse 9, salvation is from the Lord. So Jonah's beginning to see that his life will be saved. Now, when we talk about repentance, here's the question. Who needs to repent? Who needs to repent? And I really believe that there are only two groups of people that need to repent. The first is people who are not Christians. You see, if you're, if you're here and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, 
You're living your life on your own. Then Jesus has actually done everything possible to invite you into life with him. Jesus died on the cross for our sins. Our sins separated us from God, but God loved us so much that he doesn't want us to be in that place. And so he suffered. He hung on a cross and died to pay for the consequences of our sin so that we could have life with God. And all we need to do is we need to turn and walk towards him. We need to recognize that he is our Savior and our Lord. And really, truly, the gospel says that God loved us so much that he would do anything to to, to get us into a relationship with him. And what we must do in response is to repent, to turn, and to walk towards him. And so if you're here and you're not a Christian, you you need to repent. You need to turn to Jesus. But, But listen, if there's only two groups of people that need repentance and one is non-Christians, then who else needs to repent? Christians, correct. You see, if you're a follower of Jesus, we too must live a lifestyle of repentance. And and we're not repenting uh, to, to put ourselves in judicially right relationship with God because, see, the moment you become a Christian... God forgives your sins and you have what's called justification. That means you're made righteous before God. And you did not do that. Jesus did that. Jesus made you righteous before God when he died on the cross. And so we don't repent to to put ourselves in judicial right relationship with God. We repent to restore our intimacy with God. In much the same way that if, if I sin against Katie or let me say this, when I sin against Katie, just because I mess up, it doesn't mean we're not married anymore. But if I refuse to repent, if I refuse to change, there will be a blockade in our relationship. And if we refuse to acknowledge our wrong before God, it's going to affect our relationship with him. And so I want us to write this down and think about this if you're taking notes. Repentance is not a them thing. Repentance is a me thing. And we need to understand this because I think a lot of times when we think about repentance, we immediately start to think like, oh, yeah, I know some people who need to repent. Like, I, can, I, can I like submit a survey? I have some ideas for the people at this church that I could think need to repent. I, I have somebody in my small group or in my neighborhood or I have a family member that I know could really use this message. But, but here's what I think God is wanting us to see is that repentance is a me thing. That I need to, if I want to continue to move forward in my relationship with God, I need to have a lifestyle and a heartbeat of repentance. You see, I want us to hear this. And if you haven't heard anything else today, I want us to hear this. I believe that your level of growth in your relationship with God is going to be hugely affected by your willingness to humble yourself before him and to repent. In your marriage, if you're married, husbands and wives, your, your level of, of growth, your level of intimacy in your relationship with your spouse, it's going to be hugely affected by your willingness to say you're sorry, to be open to change. Parents, grandparents, step-parents, your level of growth, your level of connection with your child is going to be Hugely dependent on your willingness to be open to your failures. Repentance is not just a them thing. Repentance is a me thing. Now, Jesus tells a story, and it's one of his uh, most beautiful parables, and it really highlights what repentance is. It's in Matthew 21. I want us to read it together on the screen. And imagine this, that Jesus is speaking to a crowd like this, and he's telling a story to evoke their imagination and to ask them a question. And he says, what do you think? He says, there was a man who had two sons. And he went to the first and said, son, go and work today in the vineyard. So he has a task for his son. And I got to respect the boldness of his son. The son says, I will not. And he answered, but later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and did the same thing. And And the son answered, I will, sir but he did not go. Maybe parents, you're thinking about your two kids and which one would be which one in the story. Which of the two did what his father wanted? 
The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Now, here's what's happening. Jesus is providing this story to the Jewish people, and he's highlighting to them that they are like the second son because God had actually made a covenant with the Jewish people, and the Jewish people said, I will obey the covenant. We will follow you. But then they go and they rebel, and they do completely the opposite of what God said. But then there are these other people who seemingly love to rebel, but their heart is tender, and they actually end up coming to God. But during this story, we really see the elements of repentance. And there's two elements to repentance that we see in this story and throughout Scripture. The first element of repentance is this, a change of heart. When you hear God's word, when God convicts your heart about an action or a thought or a a motive or a pattern in your life, you have a change of heart. The Scripture comes into your life and changes and the first, way, the first thing that you need in repentance is you need a change of heart. We saw it with the first son. The son said, I'm not going to do it. And then it says later, he changed his mind. And for us, for repentance to happen, we must have a change of heart. But there needs to be a second step. Because most people, whether or not they're followers of Jesus, when they do something wrong, they, they feel bad about it. There, there's a guilt. But... The Apostle Paul, and this is not on the screen, but the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 7, he says this, Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation without regret, but worldly sorrow brings death. So just because you feel bad about something doesn't mean you're done with moving forward with it. Judas felt bad about betraying Jesus. And so we have to take another step, and the next step is not just a change of heart, but a change of action. That that we actually have to respond and step towards God. So if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, I I would believe that probably the change of heart is, is, is happening right now, that God is speaking to you and God is telling you, hey, you need to change, you need to see Jesus, you need to step towards Jesus. But it also takes a change of action that we respond, we repent, we walk towards Jesus and we say, I wanna follow him. But, but for all of us in this room, for, for those of us who are Christians, when God convicts us of a sin, we must have a change of heart, and then we must actually take action towards that. Uh, for, for me personally, I, I think about even over the past couple of weeks, there's been a couple of different relationships in my life that I've just felt like there's been a barrier there. There's just been something between us. And, and so in, in two different instances, I had to go to the person and I had to say, hey, are we okay? Like, did something happen? And in both instances, uh, something was brought up that, that I did that I, I could have done better. And so I had to say, I'm sorry, I apologize. And it was amazing to see how God worked in both of those situations. But for you, if God is laying on your heart that you have sinned against someone, then yes, there should be a change of heart, but there should also be an action to go and to have the conversation. If there's a habit or, or, a, or a, a pattern in your life that's wrong, yes, we should have a change of heart, but we should also say, what steps can I take? What group can I join? How can I continue to follow Jesus? It's not just enough to feel bad. We want to be doers of the word as well. Now, Jonah, he has a change of heart. He cries out to God, the change of action. And here's what we see in verse 10. And this is how we'll wrap up. In verse 10, it said this, And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, there's a verb for you this morning. (laughs) Now, even here, we see the grace of God. I know that Jonah was thankful that the verse doesn't read, The Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah two miles from shore. (laughs) And Jonah had to swim. No, God even while Jonah was still in his rebellious stage, even while Jonah was still trying to wrestle with God, God was already sending the fish to the place he needed to be. God is working in your life even when you're far from him. Even when you're resistant, even when you're not quite there, God is saying, man, I'm still pouring out my grace. I'm still pouring out my mercy on you because I want you to change. Amen. Amen. 
So, so what happens when we repent? This is how I want to close. What happens when we repent? Well, I want to talk first about in our human relationships. I wrote this down. When we repent or after we repent, we work to restore trust with our human relationships. You see, in, in a Christian relationship, when repentance happens, there should be forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is a moment. Building trust is a journey. And you could be, have forgiven someone but not have full trust restored yet. And so for you and for me, when we repent, especially if, if there's something that has been major that's done to hurt the relationship, we have to work to restore that trust in the relationship. And so maybe for you right now, God is laying on your heart something that you need to apologize for and you need to change in a marriage, in a friendship, in a coworker relationship. So we repent, and then we work to restore trust. But here's what's beautiful, because that's in our human relationships. But what happens in our relationship with God? Write this down, and this is how we'll close. After we repent, God's grace and mercy rush in, and we experience renewal in our relationship with him. See, so often we feel like, oh, I got to do penance. I got to continue to to feel bad. I got to continue to pretend like there's some blockade there. I got to do a few things before I really get to a place where I'm back with God. But God is so gracious. He's so good. He is so anxious to restore relationship with us that after we repent, his grace and his mercy rush into our lives and there is renewal. Now, maybe for you, you're having trouble believing that. And so here's the story that I want to leave you with. I want to tell you a story about a man who was known as the worst king in all of Judah. In the Bible, in 2 Kings as well as 2 Chronicles, there's a man named Manasseh. And I want to tell you that Manasseh is a terrible guy. Literally the worst king in Judah. Uh, The people were in a time of revival. Manasseh came on the throne and he set up idols so they worshipped false gods. He allowed child sacrifice to take place during his reign. And it's actually recorded that Manasseh is such a bad king that during the time of Manasseh's reign, it says blood flowed throughout Jerusalem because of all the violence and all the wickedness that was happening. And what we discover during Manasseh's reign is that he actually gets what he deserves. In 2 Chronicles, we read that the Assyrian Empire, the same Assyrian Empire that Jonah is supposed to go and preach against, the Assyrian Empire uh, comes in, captures Manasseh, and leads him in chains into a prison in Assyria. And honestly, as you're reading it, if you read that story, like, for me, I'm like, yeah, he got what he deserved. He should be in prison. But there's this really crazy part of the story. It's so powerful, and It shows the radical grace of God. 2 Chronicles chapter 33, we read this. It says, In his distress, he sought the favor of the Lord his God. And he humbled himself greatly before the God of his ancestors. And when he prayed to him, the Lord was moved by his entreaty, listened to his plea, so he brought him back to Jerusalem and to his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord is God. So what we see here is that the worst king in all of Judah, a king that is so bad that even I feel like I'm uncomfortable with that amount of grace, God pours out his kindness and his mercy, and he is anxious to redeem and to restore So man, if God can do it for Manasseh, God can do it for you. Nobody is too far from the grace and the mercy of God. King David, we all know that he made some pretty major mistakes. And he wrote about his sin in Psalm 32, and he said this. He said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. We can all relate to that in Florida in August. <laughs> but maybe you're here and you're like this. You feel like you've been hiding and you haven't confessed your sin to God and you feel like 
your bones are wasting away. The, the, the strength in your life is gone because of the oppressive shame and guilt on your life. But listen, this is so beautiful. David says this. He says, then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. And I want to tell you that for you, it's just the same. Man, if we're hiding from God, we're going to feel our, ourselves withering away. But when we bring what we've been going through into the light, God's grace and his mercy are going to rush into our lives. And we're going to experience renewal. So let's, amen. Let's take a moment and let's bow our heads to pray. Remember that I told you that there are really two groups of people that need repentance. And the first group of people are people who don't yet know Jesus. If you're in this room and you would say, Brian, I'm not yet a Christian. I've never made a decision to follow God. Or maybe I was once a follower of Jesus and I've walked away and I need to rededicate my life. If that's you, I want you to know that Jesus has already done everything for you. He died on the cross for your sin so that you could have a new relationship with him. Repentance is simply turning from your old life and accepting Jesus, accepting the free gift that he's given you. So if there are people in this room right now that want to begin a relationship with Jesus or that want to rededicate their lives to Jesus, I want to ask you to do something. I want to ask you just to raise your hand in the air right now. All over this room, Awesome. I see hands going up. Awesome. Praise God. You're starting a new relationship with Jesus or just coming back. Praise God. I see hands. Balcony. Anybody up there? God loves you. God's heart is for you. He is anxious to pour out his grace and mercy. Yeah, I see that hand. Thank you. We're praising God as people are making life changes. All right, for those who raise their hands, what I want you to do is pray a simple prayer. I want you to just say to Jesus, dear Jesus, thank you for dying for my sin. Today I turn to you. I have a change of heart and I have a change of action. I am turning toward you. I am following you. Help me to follow you all the days of my life. Bring people around me that want to help me on the journey. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen. Man, we're praising God and celebrating what God is doing in this moment, but remember that, that for repentance is not just for uh, people who don't yet know Jesus. Repentance is for the Christian as well. And maybe as I've been speaking today, God has been speaking to you and reminding you that there's something that you need to do to, to give to God. And, and so here's what we're going to do. As Shane and I were talking about this week, he told me that he was planning on singing uh, such a beautiful song, and it's called Love Ran Red. I want to read the, the words of the song to you that we're about to sing. The, the verse starts off and says, There's a place where mercy reigns and never dies. There's a place where streams of grace flow deep and wide, where all the love I've ever found comes like a flood, comes flowing down. At the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life. I'm in awe of you, I'm in awe of you. Where your love ran red and my sin washed white, I owe all to you, I owe all to you, Jesus. And we're gonna sing. And as we're singing, we're gonna take a moment and do business with God. If you're like David and you're, you're, you feel that your bones are wasting away, that, that shame and guilt are oppressive on you, man, we're just gonna take a moment as we're singing to cry out to God in our hearts. We're gonna bring our, our failures before God and we're gonna remember that when we do that, his grace and his mercy are gonna rush in. Maybe there's some of you that uh, you, you're keeping a short account with God. You don't feel like you need to do anything right now, but if that's you, just take a moment during this song and just praise God and give him glory 
for his mercy and his grace in your life. Let's stand to our feet. We have some time left in our service, and so we're going to take a moment, and we're going to worship Jesus together. Let's sing. If you need to, confess to God. Pour out your heart to God. Let's worship him together. Is anybody here thankful for the grace and the mercy of God? I know I think about so many times in my life where where I've failed, where I've messed up. And to know that God's grace is longing to just rush towards us. I want to encourage you. If you're here and you had a moment today where you did business with God, where you repented, where you confessed. It says in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Amen. It says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And so I just want us to sing one more time. I want us to remind ourselves of the cross where God's grace and mercy met us. Let's sing, here my hope is found, here on holy ground. Let's declare to God, let's worship him one more time. We're grateful for his mercy. We're grateful for his grace. 
Let's sing together. Sing, here my hope is found. Jesus, we love you. We owe it all to you because of what you've done for us on that cross. The love that you poured out for us. God, we thank you. As you leave today, know that Jesus loves you, that that he sees you, that his plan is for you. And remember, God did a moment in our hearts today. But, But for many of us, it's going to take a change of action. We need to leave here and we need to take a step towards him and his plan for our lives. So I challenge us, let's take that step. As we leave a few things, first off, I see that there were many people who raised their hands all over this room. If you raise your hand, I want to ask you to do something. After our service, I want you to come down to the front. We have a prayer team down here. They would love to meet you. I'm going to be down here. And it's so important for us uh, when we take that step uh, to, to come down so that somebody, we, we, we as a prayer team and we as a, a, a church can help you take your next steps in following Jesus. But also, man, if you have any prayer needs at all, we would love to pray for you down here. As you leave, we also have our offering boxes in the back if you want to bring your tithes and, and bring your generosity to invest in the work that God's doing here. You can also give online or on the app to that. And if you are new, uh, we're so glad you're here. Uh, we have uh, our Connect Circle in the Commons, and we would love to send you out there. There's some, uh, some people on our team that would love to meet you and tell you all about how to get connected here at the church. Um, If you're looking to get connected to a group, remember, uh, for those of you guys who uh, have child care needs, uh, Wednesday night and Sunday morning are great times to get connected to groups. You can find out all about them at our Connect Circle, or you can go online or to the app to sign up. But we love you guys. We're excited for what God's doing. Uh, May God bless you this week, and we'll see you next time.